0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Alma 32 through 35
0: it's Alma and Amulek to the Zoramites. The poor Zoramites, because he tries to speak to some of them, the arrogant ones, and they won't listen, and then up comes a group of the poor ones, and he just turns his back and starts to speak to the poor because they're there, they're ready, and they want to be taught. So yeah.
1: So 32, 33 is Alma talking, 34, Amulek, Thirty-five is kind of this narrative shift where Mormon jumps in and says, "Hey, let me explain to you historically what's happening." And the very last verse in Alma thirty-five is a segue between that group of teaching to the Zoramites, and then Mormon's like, "Okay, now Alma's going to talk to his sons." And so that's kind of
0: the the overview of what's happening here. Alma thirty-two, ways of knowing. This is brilliant scripture. If you think I just again, there's no way Joseph Smith could have, at age twenty-four, been so logical to have. Put the Book of Mormon together the way it does. Because what we just saw last week, and you can't disconnect last week's block with this week's, to be helpful, we've put these chapter headings in, but sometimes we stop and we disconnect the previous chapter with the current chapter. So what we just went through was Korahor, Korahor and the, the, the wicked Zoramites, and one of the points that Alma in the text makes is, in order to combat the influence of an Antichrist, you have to have evidence. You have to have a testimony based on evidence. So the very most logical thing to do next, if you're the Lord, is to say, let me show them how to have a testimony, especially based on evidence. So chapter 32 is that brilliant chapter on how to grow a testimony. When can you say, I know? I want to say, I know. I want to be able to stand up and say, I know. But at what point can you say, I know?
1: And what does I know even mean? Yeah,
0: what does that even mean? Do you have to say, I know everything? Does that mean I can answer every question? Does that mean you can't pose a question I can't answer? Because if that's the case, then no one can say, I know.
1: And I think even in English,
0: the meaning of the word I know has changed over time. Yes. And so Alma's going to put that to rest, and Alma's going to tell us when we can say, I know. And the thing I love about Alma's presentation is I, he must have known that the Book of Mormon would come forth first in the, you know, in the Western world where we're so logical, we're so scientific based. And he says, look, I'm going to write this to you in the most scientific, illustrative way I possibly can so that you Westerners who don't necessarily read symbolism and love that type of writing, I'm going to speak in your language. Let's talk about faith as scientifically as we can, and so he presents it as an experiment. Don't get lost in the science of that, because he's really just simply saying, look, there are three phases of growing a testimony, and you need to understand the steps of each phase because there's some things you need to do, and if you fail to do them, you're not going to be able to move on to the next phase. So how do you grow a testimony from phase one to phase two to phase three? That is what these chapters are about. Alma, 33, or 32 and 33 is Alma's version of answering that question, and then 34 is Amulek's version. He's going to stand up and say, here's how you come to know that Jesus is the Christ. So both of them are trying to simply say, here's how you gain a testimony based on evidence. There are different phases, and ask yourself, what phase am I in? And I think in some regard, we're all in all three phases. But it's healthy to say, what phase am I in, and what does my testimony need in that phase? So let's jump into it. How do you build a testimony? So after Alma turns and he begins to speak to the uh, the cast out poor, he seems to suggest that there is a prerequisite. And he says it a bunch of times. Many times. Yeah. You can't miss it. So 2 12, so Alma 32 12 through 16 seems to say here's the pre- there there's a couple prerequisites. If you're really going to grow a testimony, number 1, look at the word that gets repeated a zillion times in 12 through 16. 12 times in is narrative 13 total you have to be humble prideful people struggle to build testimonies to grow testimonies the irony Bryce is that people that have pride don't know they have pride right that's the irony yeah pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick except for the person who has it and so, so you, you have to be, be humble. humble. You yeah. have to be humble. You have to be teachable and willing, and you have to have a humble heart. I like I like the idea of humble as also being hungry,
1: meaning you want you're seeking truth. You're right. a seeker. The early converts to the Church of Jesus Christ the Latter Day Saints, especially that, that big group in Ohio, they were seekers. They were looking, and so I think that that's a big part of humility, don't you think? That the yeah. idea of like I'm looking, I'm
0: hungry. And I love, see, Joseph Smith went into the grove of trees with an idea and came out, and the Lord had said something completely different. And I think humble is, I'm willing to accept whatever the Lord gives me, even if it's not what I expected to receive. I also like this idea of reframing your paradigm. So if you have a paradigm and you're
1: really fixed on it, and then you get new information, it's okay to say, okay, maybe it isn't this in church history, when we came out of this Protestant tradition and then the Lord gives section 76, some people flew apart because it contradicted their terms, their ideas of heaven and hell. And so as the Lord gives us information or as we acquire new information,
0: we can ad- we're we adaptable, right? Yeah. Neil A. Maxwell says one of the reasons we don't make the leap of faith is because there's some other conclusion we've already jumped to. That's good. And so the idea here is you have to be humble. Now, the second prerequisite Alma seems to suggest, he's going to use our words. He's going to use our kind of experience and speak of this as an experiment. Now, going back to your high school days, if you're out of high school, if you're still in high school, you can, you can testify of this, that anytime you do an experiment, you are asked to make a hypothesis. In other words, you're asked to guess how it's going to come out. That actually aids the scientific discovery process is if you guess the way it's going to come out. So the Lord kind of says in verse 27, look, you need to lean. You don't have to know, but you kind of have to maybe want it to be true. You kind of have to lean a little bit. So he says, I'm going to compare this to an experiment upon my words. And exercise a particle of faith, even if you can know more than desire to believe. So you kind of have to want it to be true. You don't necessarily have to say it's true. You, I mean, that's the whole experiment is to come to know that it's true. But you kind of have to lean and say, well, I sure would like it to be true.
1: I like the phrase where it says, give place. And we're back to and that evidentiary equilibrium, where the Lord's like, I'm going to give enough evidence that a rational person can give place for faith, right? Yep, and that's where it starts. And by the way, that's verse 27, giving place and having a desire. The Lord really does expect us to be humble or teachable, but also we're open.
0: Yeah. To stop. Cause if you walk into a testimony seeking experience already saying, I don't want it to be true. I hope it's not true. I want the Lord to tell me that it's not true. Why are you even making, doing the experiment? I mean, you've kind of tainted the results from the very beginning. You need to go in humble and willing to accept the answer if it is yes, and maybe even lean a little bit. I think it might be yes, but I'm willing to take a no. I think it might be no, but I'm willing to take a yes, you know, but I'm, I'm teachable. So assuming you've done that, those are the prerequisites. Let's start the experiment. So phase one of this experiment is when you actually do what Mike just suggested. Verse 28, we will compare the word to a seed, and you have to give place that that seed may be planted in your heart. And I love the phrase, give place. You have to give place. Now, in in describing this experiment, I'm going to use coming to know that the Book of Mormon is true is the seed. But it might be coming to know that there is a loving God in heaven, or coming to know that Jesus is the Christ, or coming to know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored church on earth. Just for my frame of reference, when we talk about this, my experiment is I want to know that the Book of Mormon is true. So how do you give place if that's your experiment? So clearly, if you want to know that there's a loving God in heaven, how do you give place for that experiment? Well, you talk to him. You pray. If your experiment is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints being the restored Church of God on earth, you have to give place. You have to go, you have to experiment, you have to investigate, you have to read. A good analogy would be today with diets. You
1: actually have to try it. You can't just read about it. You actually have to do it. So if you're on a specific diet and it's like, Okay, you're on a no sugar diet, that means no sugar. No sugar. sugar. You or, can't
0: be saying I'm hey, I'm trying to lose weight by not eating sugar as you drink a sugar soda. Yeah.
1: So anyway, I I like the diet analogy because I think especially in the West, we're so into diets right now.
0: Yeah, but you have to give place. That's 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 where it starts. If you want to gain a testimony, you have to give place. Now, if you do sincerely give place that the seed is planted, step number two is you need to watch for evidence that the seed grows. Because what we're really going to do is phase one is coming to know that the seed is a good seed. That's the end result of phase one is I know that this seed that I planted is in fact a real good seed. So if you plant it, you need to begin to look for evidence. Now, I love the Book of Mormon here because he just simply says, look, evidence doesn't come the same way to all people at all times. You may not get the swelling in your breast that someone else gets. You, The Lord may speak to you in a different way. So don't take it as it's all four of these or none of these. It's, hey, here are some ways you're going to see the evidence.
1: Wouldn't you say that as you look at these ways— The Lord's worked all of them with you? Yes. For me too.
0: But one is more appealing to me than the other. Okay. When I'm searching for truth, the Lord knows how to get it into my heart first. Now, eventually I get all four of them, but one of them seems to kind of resonate quickly with me. What's your one? Logic. Okay. it, It makes sense to me. The Lord just presents it in a logical way, and boom, that's the light that goes on. But then the swelling comes. So let's talk about all four of them. And notice it's begin to, begin to, begin to. This is a slow process that begins to grow. But if you plant the seed, and if it's a good seed, uh, here are the four things you can watch for. Number one, it will swell within your breasts.
1: And this is all verse 28. Verse 28's a big deal. You might want to just highlight
0: this verse. Yeah, and you may want to go really slow through it and digest it at a slow pace. Right. So plant the seed and watch for evidence, because if it's a good seed, it will, number one, swell, which seems to suggest the feeling. A swelling is a feeling. In other words, you'll feel something. Reading the Book of Mormon will cause you to feel something maybe you haven't felt in a while. Praying to Heavenly Father will cause you to feel something. But for all the critics that criticize the church because we put emphasis on our feelings, look at the other three. The next one is, if it's a good seed, it will begin to enlarge your soul. Now think about what that means. If my soul is enlarging, then I'm growing, I'm getting better, I'm improving. So, one of the great evidences that the Book of Mormon is true is reading it will make me a better person.
1: Another example would be Christianity. How do we know Christianity is good? Well, people that are trying to follow it, not only does it enlarge their soul, but it enlarges society. I mean, how many hospitals have been built by people
0: because of their belief in Jesus? Just well, that alone schools, orphanages, and universities, yeah. and orphanages. It will enlarge, it will make bigger, it will grow. And, and and to me, one of the greatest evidences that I have is I have spent my life watching people's lives changed as they read the Book of Mormon. What do you have to conclude about the seed? If planting the seed makes you a better person, what do you have to conclude? That The seed was a good seed. You have evidence that the seed was a good seed. It swelled, and it enlarged. Now, that's just two of them. The third one is it enlightened your understanding. It just made sense. It's logical. It just resonated inside your soul. Oh my goodness, that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that Jesus would come and not just visit one people on earth, that he would visit other people on earth. It just clicks in your head. It's like, and you all, we all know that feeling, right? That moment where just connections are made and something just seems so logical, it enlightens my understanding. It's like, oh my goodness. That makes so much sense. Of course Jesus visited other people. He didn't just go to Jerusalem and that was it. Of course there were other people that he visited, and of course they made a record of it. That makes sense. It's logical to me. It enlightens my understanding. And then the last one, it just is delicious. It tastes tastes good. good. Yeah. And I think that's what—I love watching Mike, because when Mike finds something, he gets into a book, and there's truth in that book, and he just—it's like it's like a little kid eating a candy stick. It's just so good to me. It just tastes good. It makes me a better person. It makes sense. I'm making connections I've never made before. I love Joseph
1: Smith, where he said this. In the King Follett sermon in April of 1844, he said, "'This is good doctrine. It tastes good.'" I can taste the principles of eternal life, and so can you. They are given to me by the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I know that when I tell you these words of eternal life as they're given to me, you taste them, and I know that you believe them. You say, honey, is sweet, and so do I. I can taste the spirit of eternal life. I know it is good, and when I tell you these things which are given me by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you are bound to receive them as sweet and rejoice more and more." There are so many times as we grow in the gospel, we learn something and we're like, that just is so good. And that's because it's the fountain. The fountain is goodness.
0: I can't tell you how many times after I've taught a class that truth was, you know, discussed, or I've sat in a class where truth was just revealed. And quite often the reaction after the class was, oh, that was so good. That was so good. Meaning... It tasted so good. It enlightened my mind. It's going to make me a better person. So Alma's trying to say, if you will try the experiment, if you will give place and then watch what the seed does, if the seed swells within you, if it enlarges your soul, if it enlightens your understanding, if it's delicious to you, then you have actual physical evidence that the seed is a good seed. Now, just to show you the brilliance of the Book of Mormon, I just love this. The four evidences are that it swells, that it enlarges, that it enlightens, and that it's delicious. Just look at the first letter of each of those, swells, enlarges, enlightens, and delicious. You'll never forget it now. It's seed. It's an acronym. It's an acronym. Seed which is exactly what we're talking about. That's brilliant. And that's exactly what Alma says. Now, for all of you who've ever struggled with the ability to say, quote, I know, here we go. Listen to verse 30. But behold, as the seed swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, you must needs say that the seed is good. For behold, it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow. And now, behold, will not this strengthen your faith? Yea, it will strengthen your faith. For ye will say, or may I paraphrase it, you can now say, I know that this is a good seat. Now, I love that he, he clarifies that. In verse 34, he says, is your knowledge perfect? Well, it's perfect in that thing. Because then he says in verse 35, is your knowledge perfect? In verse 36, he says, no, it's not. You're not done learning. So what he's saying is, it's okay to say, I know the seed is a good seed. It's okay, even for a child or a youth, or anyone who has evidence that the seed is a good seed, to stand up and say, I know that the seed is a good seed. I know that the Book of Mormon is a good book. I know that it's a true book because it enlarges, it enlightens. It's so delicious to me, and I feel something when I read it. It's okay to testify that the seed is good. No, you don't have to know everything about it. But you do know, you have perfect knowledge in that thing that the seed is good. I think it's also important to talk about that
1: not one of these things is the only way, the only way of knowing. So, for example, on the swelling inside of you, a lot of times that's related to section nine of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse eight, right? Well, it will swell within you and you'll feel this burning in your bosom. And I remember relating with students that verse one time, and they said, well, I've never had that experience. And then we went to Alma 32 and looked at other ways of knowing, and a lot of times students will say things like, but I have had this experience. And so it's different for different people, but some people have the enlightened part, their mind really lights up, and other people have this feeling. Some people, it is enlarging
0: to them. It's not necessarily one thing. That's the beauty of Alma throwing in four, four pieces of evidence that you can look for, because the Lord's going to relate to you differently than He relates to me. So maybe maybe you're more of a—my wife is more compelled by the swelling inside her heart, and I'm much more compelled by the enlightening that comes into my mind. And yet, we both kind of have our own way. My wife knows it's true because she feels it. I know it's true primarily because it just makes so much sense, and it's so delicious. And so don't be don't be upset that, you know, in this church we seem to talk about knowing by one particular way, but Alma just opens up so many other ways that we come to know. And I like how he ties faith
1: to the seed, to the tree, and then there's this other word that he's going to throw, this light word, as it were, a theme word, and the word is nourish or nourishment, and that really is the essence of faith. The Greek notion of faith is pistis, and that word literally means it's relational. So... The word faith has been kind of changed through the apostasy, and Brent Schmidt has written a great book on this. I highly recommend it, where he shows you, here's how the word faith has changed over time. But the ancient nuances of pistis, the ancient nuances of faith, was that it was relational. It wasn't a one-way thing, and it didn't mean believe. Faith was relational in the sense of it was this trust and it was this mutual exchange. And so I think the way Alma's portraying that is in the end of Alma 32, where he says, if you want to have this experience, then you've got a verse 37, nourish it with great care. That is feeding it so that it can feed you, it meaning the tree. But that is, once again, think about this, you feed it, then it feeds you. What is that? That's reciprocity. That's, that's a reciprocal relationship. The nuances of that word faith are portrayed right here in this chapter and the following chapter, because later again in the next chapter, he'll say, hey, it's going to feed you, right? So
0: Mike's now pushing us into phase two. Once you get to the point where you can say the seed is good, you've kind of completed phase one. Phase one, the end result of phase one is to be able to say I know the seed is a good seed. Look at verse 31. Can you be sure? Can you be sure? Yes. You can be sure that the seed is a good seed, that it swells and lightens and enlarges and, and is delicious. I, I am sure. Verse 35. Is it real? Do you have a real testimony? Yes. You have a real testimony. Okay. So that's phase one, and we call it the seed phase. Phase one is the seed, because notice, starting back in 28, five times in verse 28, it was referred to as a seed. Jumping to verse 30, three times in verse 30, it's a seed. Twice in verse 31, once in verse 32, twice in verse 33, and then we jump down to verse 36. Twice in verse 36, it's a seed, and then all of a sudden in verse 37, it's no longer referred to as a seed. The seed phase is over. Now in verse 37, it's a tree, but it's a tree that's beginning to grow. So your faith is no longer a seed sprouting out of the ground. Now your faith is a growing tree, a sapling, so to speak. Now what do growing trees need? So now we're in phase two of a testimony, and this is where quite often we can lose the tree. It is possible for someone to pass phase one, be able to say that the seed is a good seed, and then end up throwing the tree out. So let's do a positive and let's do a negative. 37 is the positive, 38 is the negative. So let's do the positive. If we want to grow this growing tree, if we want this little sapling to get bigger and mighty, what do we have to do? Well, the, it's right here in verse 37. You have to nourish it. You have to nourish a testimony. Let me say that emphatically as many times as I can. You have to nourish your growing testimony. It needs food. It has to be fed. If you don't nourish it, it won't. Look at the next one. Get root. So why do plants need roots? Roots mean it can hold on to the earth in a storm. It's deep within the earth. It can hold on and it can suck up nutrients even in a dry day. So you need to nourish it so that it gets root, so that it grows up and brings forth fruit. That's what your testimony has to do. And if the roots go deep, then the tree will grow. And eventually you'll have fruit. I lived for eight years in the blessed land of Thatcher, Arizona, in which they grow cotton. And I'll never forget learning how to grow cotton. Watching them grow cotton was one of the the most fascinating things I've ever seen. Because in the Arizona summers, in the heat of the Arizona, you've got to have deep roots. So what they do is they plow their furrows. They plow the rows. And then they water the rows for about two weeks. That's it. They're watering dirt. No seed. They're watering dirt, and then they plant their seeds and stop watering. That made no sense to me when I first watched them. The ignorant Utah boy is looking at this saying, you're crazy. You water it after you put the seed in. But they would water the dirt, put the seed in, and then stop watering until I realized what they were doing. By watering the dirt, the water line went up high and then they put the seed in. And then as that water line recedes, the seed's roots chase that water line deep into the earth. So that when it, the heat of the summer comes, that cotton flourishes. Now your testimony is going to go through the heat of the summer. And if it doesn't have deep roots, if you forgot to nourish it so that it doesn't have deep roots, It's going to be scorched. And that's the mistake that so many people make, is they don't nourish their testimony and give it deep roots. Now, I love in verse 42, we clarify that it needs to take root in you. It needs to be deeply rooted in you. Not in mom, not in dad, not in a friend, not in the missionaries who converted you. It has to take root in you, and those roots need to be deep. I think
1: a careful reading of verse 42 also shows that Alma knows Nephi's vision Yeah, because it talks about the white above all, it's pure above all, this fruit is most precious. Those descriptors are talking about the fruit
0: from the tree in his vision. So you can see where we're going. You can see what tree this is. And that's going to be phase number three is getting to that fruit stage.
1: And I'm going to throw this out there. If you haven't heard the podcast on 1 Nephi 8 and 1 Nephi 11, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But one of the things the tree could represent
0: is the Savior. Yeah. And having a testimony in Jesus. Yeah. So now let's do the negative. So the positive is to nourish it so that it gets root, it grows up, and produces fruit. But notice verse 38. But if you neglect the tree to take no thought of its nourishment... So you just are negligent. It's not that you're, you're evil. It's not that your disposition has changed. It's just that you just forgot to nourish the tree. If you take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And if it doesn't have root, the heat of the sun is going to come out and scorch it. And because it has no root, it will wither away. And you will pluck it. And you will cast this tree out. You will cast out your testimony. And it's not because it's a bad seed. Everyone seems to blame the seed when they cast out their testimony. I've watched people leave the church. I've watched their faith wither and die. And quite often when they pluck the tree and they cast it out, they blame the seed. But the, they, they have evidence that the seed was a good seed. The reason they're casting it out is because they neglected it. Now, I want you to just think of this. Pretend I'm a growing tree. If the heat outside overpowers the water coming up from below, then it's going to push that water back down to the point where it's out and I wither. But if the water coming up from the roots overpowers the heat that's coming from the outside, then your tree grows. So are you nourishing your testimony so that the heat of the world around you cannot overpower that nutrient. I think this ties right back into our conversation
1: about Korahor and how I would never tell a student, don't read something. You know, we're, I'm never going to say, go burn books, or you can't read these ideas. Stay but,
0: away from it. it. Let's be ignorant. Yeah. Ignorant is
1: not the goal here. I, I mean, I actually do do this, Bryce. I read books by atheists that are commenting on Scripture, and I know that sounds very strange. But I do it to unpack their approach of the text to see, okay, what are their arguments? I want to understand them. But if that's all I'm reading, if all I'm reading is that stuff, then I think I'm doing it
0: wrong. Then the heat from outside is going to overpower the nutrition from inside, and that tree is going to wither. Which kind
1: of reminds me of the vision of the tree, right? There's the voices of the people shouting from the building, and Nephi says, but we heated them not. I think that's a really good approach. But the bottom line is, think about this, there were people that left the tree and went to the building, and it was just words. The only thing those people in the building were using words. Think about that, the power of words. And now to liken it, and you have access to social media, how many of us have been riled up emotionally by something somebody
0: said? And so we've got to nourish this. We've got to make sure that the nutrients coming up from the roots overpower the heat coming down from the environment. Because if not problem, you're going to wither and die. So if Mike reads an anti-Christ book and he's not nourishing his soul— you can see which direction it's going to flow. But the reason Mike can read those and be benefited and say, I want to know what their arguments are so I can help people not be swayed by those arguments, so I can counter and, and explain and teach and testify. It's like the
1: generals in the Book of Mormon War chapters, there's a reason why they have spies. There's a re- we need to know what they're saying. I need right? to
0: know what the strategy is, yeah. which is why Mike reads these books. But I can tell you that Mike is constantly feeding his soul is constantly nourishing that tree and filling it with nutrients that cause that tree to grow. So there it is. There's phase two. So if you are not nourishing your your tree and the heat is overpowering it, don't be surprised if you end up plucking your testimony and casting it out. And don't blame the seed. Don't blame the seed that it was a bad seed because you had great evidence that the seed was a good seed. You just forgot to nourish it.
1: I just want to reiterate what Bryce is saying. If you pick up something or you hear something negative, you have to ask yourself this question Is it worth the time that I'm going to take to chase this negative thing? Or do I just have enough time to nourish the tree? And for most of us in the church, that's going to take about all your time. By the time you're done taking care of all the things you have to do with your life and to pay your bills and take care of your kids. Nourishing your tree is about all the time you have time for. And so we have
0: to make these judgments. And and Amulek's going to harp on that a little bit in chapter 34. He's going to say, this life is the time to grow the tree. It's the most important thing you'll do in this life. So grow the tree. Don't let the heat overpower you. So there's phase two. And I would just invite everyone to ponder, where are you? What are you doing to feed the tree? And it's worth it. Verse 42,
1: this is worth it. It's the most, like you said, it's the most important thing. Yep.
0: Okay, so now let's get to phase three, right? So phase one is the seed phase. You plant the seed, you look for evidence so that you can say, I know the seed is true. Phase two is the growing of the tree, that it, it, it's, it's growing. Phase two ends when it produces fruit, when you've grown a tree large enough to produce fruit, And now you're on to phase three, because look at verse 40. Notice that it went from seed, seed, seed to a growing tree. And now in verse 40, we're not just growing a tree. Like Mike said, we are growing the tree, the tree of all trees. We are growing the tree of life. And I love that symbolism. You don't find that in the Bible, that the tree of life that we talk about all throughout the scriptures is actually grown inside your heart. Now, if you have grown the tree, remember how the end result of verse 37 is that if you nourish it, it'll get root and grow up and bring forth fruit. Now, if you have brought forth fruit, and I love verse 41, by your diligence and your patience and your looking forward to it. That's a great repeat of, of phase two, that by your faith, with great diligence, with patience, looking forward to the fruit, it took root and now it's springing up. Notice what happens in phase three. Once it takes root in you and produces fruit, you will pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above that which is sweet, which is white above all that which is white, which is pure above all that which is pure, tying this back into Lehi's vision— And you will feast upon this fruit until you are filled, that you hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. Now, do you see the connection? There was a time when your testimony was hungry and thirsty, when your young testimony needed more. I need more spirit. I need more connection with God. And if you fed your testimony when your testimony was hungry Now that you are hungry, now that life's challenges are shaking you, your testimony will feed you. If you grow a testimony, your testimony will grow you, and it will save you. How many of you listening have been saved in a dark day by the fruit of your testimony? It was your faith, it was your testimony that got you through the darkness. Now, let me illustrate, let me give you an example of someone who never grew the tree or really wanted to grow a tree, said he was going to grow a tree, but never grow a tree. And then when the darkness came, he realized he didn't have any fruit to get him through it. Now, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, what turned him around, what caused him to go back and reevaluate his life and to change was the death of his wife. His wife died and he realized something that he needed to know. So let me read that experience. He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to tie a box. But supposing you had to hang by that rope over a cliff, wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? I had been warned. I had warned myself. We were even promised sufferings. They are part of the program. We were even told, quote, blessed are they that mourn. And I accepted it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it's very different when the thing happens to you and not to others. And in reality, not in imagination. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered to me whether it would hold me. And now it matters. It matters and I find that it didn't. Bridge players tell me that there must be some money on the game or else no one will take it seriously. Apparently it's like that. Your bid for God for eternal life will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high, until you find out that you are not playing for counters or for sixpences, but for every penny you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate, a man like me, out of his merely vulgar thinking and his merely notional beliefs. it has to be He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses, and only trial will bring out the truth. Only under trial does he discover it himself. Only under trial do we sometimes discover that I didn't grow the tree, and I don't have fruit to eat in the darkness. So what did C.S Lewis do? He went back and did the experiment, and he nourished the tree. If you nourished the tree when you need it, the tree will nourish you. In fact, that's what eternity is. You get into the celestial kingdom if you have fruit on your tree, because you have food to eat. The food of the celestial kingdom, as portrayed all throughout the scriptures, is the fruit of the tree that we grew in our heart. If you didn't grow the tree, if you cast out that tree, then you can't go to the celestial kingdom. And that's not because God doesn't love you. It's because you would starve in the celestial kingdom. You have no fruit to eat. But if you grew the tree, you have this source of never-ending fuel for your soul that Jesus talked about. Remember the Samaritan woman where he says, If you drink of my water, you'll never thirst. It's the fruit of the tree. If you grow the tree, then it will grow you. But if you fail to grow the tree, it can't. It can't feed you in the darkness if you didn't grow the tree. So, three wonderful phases of the testimony. That's good. I really like verse 42. I really like
1: how the Bible begins and ends with that motif of the tree. At the end of the book of Revelation, John sees the saints come into the city. And if you've ever heard the phrase, the pearly gates, it's right in there, right? The gates are made of pearls. And in the heart of the city in heaven is this tree. And he talks about the 12 manner of fruits. And then he talks about the leaves even heal them. And the water they they drink it and they never thirst and this is tied into the idea of the feast when we meet the heavenly king and we have this feast which is tied into section 27 of the doctrine and covenants where the lord says don't marvel we're going to have a feast it's tied into exodus 24 where Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the sons of Israel go to the top of the mountain they have a feast with god and i think we practice this feast every sunday this is a practice session and so if you don't even show up to the feast How can you eat if you don't show up? Which we're back to the wedding feast, right? Remember when Jesus says, I invited people and they didn't come. So I I went to the Gentiles and they came. And the idea is that it's open to everybody. Yeah. And I can't feed you if you don't come to the feast and you can't eat if you don't grow the tree. You got to show up and you got to try. I really do think that our ability is not as important as our heart. We all have different levels and The Lord's like, you just get up and try. So many times I'll I don't know if you have this experience, Bryce, but I do. I'll teach a lesson and I'm like, man, did I try hard? (laughs) It wasn't maybe the best lesson, but I tried. Yeah. That that's something. And 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 the Lord can see that we're trying.
0: Yeah, and I think trying hard is good food. It's good nutrients.
1: So that's that in essence is ways of knowing, which really ties into his discussion that he had with Korihor, where Korihor is like well, what do you know? And Alma says, not only is this what I know, but this is how I know. And that's important. And I think it's good for us Latter-day Saints to be able to articulate you know, how we know stuff. And so in the next chapter, he starts talking to them to say, essentially, do you guys believe this stuff? And they come out and say, yeah, we do. Now, he's going to quote a couple Old Testament prophets. He's going to quote Zenos, and he's going to quote Zenic and one of the things he's going to say a lot is the son, because of the son. If you just read those first few verses, it'll say that over and over again. I'll read verse 11, for example. He talks about, You did hear me because of mine afflictions and my sincerity, and it is because of thy son that thou hast been merciful unto me. Therefore I will cry unto thee in all mine afflictions, for in thee is my joy, for thou hast churned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. Over and over again, look at the end of verse 13. Thou hast turned away thy judgments because of thy son. Because of thy son, because of thy son. It's also at the end of verse 16. There's a couple things I like about this. There's a lot of things, but one of them is this. To Alma, it's all because of Jesus, right? Of course we keep the commandments. Of course we grow the tree, but it's nothing without him. Another thing I like about this is Alma's trying to draw a line, and I think he's showing us an Old Testament that we don't have. He's showing us that there were prophets that understood that there was a God, that was the most high God, the El Elyon, but then there was the Son, and the Son was going to come down and do stuff, and that there's a distinction there. And this is lost to us in our Old Testament Bibles. It's lost to us, this idea of a father and a son, and Alma's showing us this, He's hearkening them back to the brass plates. Remember, Zenos and Zenic are brass plates prophets that are not in the Old Testament. And because of Zenic's words, at least, we know in verse 17 that Zenic was stoned to death. And then he gets into verse 19, the Moses narrative, how a type was raised up, and that did survive in the Old Testament editorial process. The story of Moses and the raising of the type, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that survives. But Zenic and Zenit, those two prophets and other Old Testament prophets do not survive. In my contention, I'm going to geek out just for a minute on this. This is an example of the strains of the Pentateuch or the traditions, the strands of narratives that made it into the Old Testament. In scholarship, it's pretty much a conclusion to most biblical scholars that the Old Testament account did not derive from a single original source, but that has a complex history. And in scholarship, there's traditionally four strands. There's a northern text called E, and there's a southern text called J. There's another text called P, which we're not going to talk about, and then there's a fourth called D, which is the Deuteronomist. Now, we talked a lot about this in very the very beginning of the Book of Mormon in 1 Nephi 1, so if this is new to you, go back and listen to that. But essentially, what Zenus and Zenic represent are an, a strand of the Old Testament that talked about God differently than the people in the South. The Southern authors, what's called J, they typically define God as Yahweh, and they talked about him in anthropomorphic terms. And the Northern prophets also talked about God, but a little bit differently, and they're the most edited of the Bible. Most of their stuff's been edited out. So the brass plates are an Old Testament version that didn't make it into the Old Testament. What I mean by that is this. There were multiple traditions, and the brass plates, to me, reflects a northern tradition. And why do we know this? Why do we think that the brass plates are northern? Well, first, there's prophets that are talked about that are edited out. Zenus, Zenic, Num. Amulek, and the Book of Mormon in Alma 10 reports that Lehi descended from Manasseh. Joseph Smith also stated that according to the first portion of the Book of Mormon record, the transcript of which was lost by Martin Harris, that Ishmael, who accompanied Lehi, was also a descendant of Ephraim. Those are northern tribes. This points to an origin of their text from the northern kingdom. I talked about the most edited was the northern text, the e-text. That's from Zenos and Zenic. Nowhere else in the Book of Mormon does Zenos mention Jerusalem. The only place is in 1 Nephi 19, verse 13. Notice how he describes Jerusalem. Just the way he describes it, to me, lends to the idea that Zenoch was from the north. Look what it says. 1 Nephi 19, verse 13. And as for those who are at Jerusalem, saith the prophet, they shall be scourged by all people because they crucify the God of Israel and turn their hearts aside, rejecting signs and wonders and the power and the glory of the God of Israel. Notice what Zenich says. He says, for those who are at Jerusalem, it seems to indicate that he's not from Jerusalem, but he's talking about another group of people indicating to me that he's a northern prophet. Um Lehi's connection with Joseph of Egypt is emphasized over and over again. Remember, Joseph is a northern tribe. So look what he says. He says, "...for behold, I am a descendant of Joseph, who was carried captive into Egypt. There can be no question to me that this information was derived from the brass plates, for it was his first inspection of them when Lehi inspects the brass plates, where it's revealed to him that he's a descendant of Joseph." Now, why does this matter? Part of it is this, that there were different traditions that transmitted through regionally distinct scribal schools to put the text together right around the 10th century. A really good book on this is Carol VanderTorn, Scribal Culture and the Making of the Hebrew Bible. And so there's scribes and scribal schools that take these oral traditions and they textualize them. And as they do, these documents, they come together right about the time that Assyria comes in. And takes out the north so think work with me here it's the 10th and it's the 9th centuries and we have scribal schools in the south talking about god a certain way we have scribal schools in the north we have prophets and then in 721 a massive thing politically happens assyria comes from the north and the israelites are scattered and what we think happens is that lehi's ancestors they take the brass plates or something like them and they take them south sometime during this period the northern texts and the southern texts get woven together and in that weaving, we get massive editing. And the editing that I'm proposing to you is that Zenic and Zenas; these guys are taken out. Their, their prophecies of Jesus, the very plain and precious things that Nephi is so adamant about, those are edited out. And these editors, I'm going to call them the Deuteronomists. They change the way we view God, and God loses his body. He can only be found at the temple, only in Jerusalem, and he's kind of the God of of the Christian creeds that comes later. This comes out of the Deuteronomistic editing of the text. But the E and the J version, they talked about God differently. Now, the nature of who God was and that God the Father had a son, all that's edited out of the Bible. And so the most classic verse of the Book of Mormon to show that there's clearly stuff missing out of the Bible is 1 Nephi 19, verse 10. And it says this, The God of our fathers, who were led out of Egypt, out of bondage, and also were preserved in the wilderness by him, yea, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, yielded himself, according to the words of the angel, as a man, into the hands of wicked men to be lifted up according to the words of Zenic, and to be crucified according to the words of Neum, and to be buried in a sepulchre according to the words of Zenus, which he spake concerning the three days of darkness, which should be a sign given of his death, unto those who should inhabit the Isles of the Sea, more especially given unto those who are of the house of Israel. You guys, if first Nephi nineteen ten was in the Old Testament, it would have solved a lot of problems certainly they would have seen Jesus for who he is. To me, First Nephi 19.10 shows us that there were a group of people who knew who the Son of God was. Now, Zenich teaches this, and according to Alma in verse 15 of Alma 33 and verse 17, for his teaching, they kill him, which tells me that this idea was not popular. And so when the northern text and the southern text were put together, and when they're edited out, this stuff's taken out. And I think this is a big part of why Nephi and Lehi are fired up. And they say, hey, plain and precious things have been removed. And so my point is that the brass plates reflect this earlier version of who God was, and that there were a group of Jews that understood that God would send a son, and that he would come down and die, and that the Book of Mormon teaches this, and it's restoring this stuff that's put
0: back. My take on everything Mike just quoted is this. Jesus has been taken out. And if you want to nourish your tree, you've got to find him. To me, that's what chapter 33 is saying. is The Bible, the Old Testament has lost Jesus. It was taken out. And the world has lost Jesus. Isn't that a type and a shadow of everything around us? The world has lost Jesus. Now, if you're going to nourish your tree... There's no way to nourish their tree without Jesus. You've got to. So go back to the verse, or chapter 33. Notice it's prayer. Starting in verse 3, prayer. Verse 4, prayer. Verse 5, cry unto him. Verse 6, prayer. You've got to pray unto the Father. And that's one way we connect with God and we connect with Christ. And then starting in verse 12, it's scriptures. 13, what did Zenos say? 14, read the scriptures. 15, also spake the prophets. 18, who have spoken concerning the Son of God. You've got to study the scriptures because that's how we discover Christ. And then the point of this whole thing about Moses lifting up a type and a shadow, it's so that just like they looked and lived, we need to look and live. Now, don't disconnect 33 from 32. He's trying to say, this is how you nourish the tree, plant the seed, now nourish the tree by prayer and scripture study and getting the Savior into your life. You have to find Jesus. You have to look because he's the reason that you'll live. There's some cool
1: application in Alma 33, 19 and 20 about Moses raising up the type. When Moses raises up that type, we're talking about this serpent. And you can read about this in Numbers chapter 21, right? They're being bitten by snakes, And so the Lord says, make a brass serpent, and Moses does, and he raises it up. And what happens?
0: So in verse 19, Moses raised up a type in the wilderness. They had to look, and they lived. And there were many people who walked away. There were many people who didn't look, and they perished. And there are people today who are not looking and perishing. And I want to talk about and to those people. And I think chapter 33 reveals one of the most significant reasons people don't turn to Christ. So in verse 19, Moses raised up a type in the wilderness, they had to look and they lived. Now verse 20, few understood the meaning of these things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. There were many who were so hardened they would not look, therefore they perished. And I will say to you today, there are Latter-day Saints today who are in a similar way hardened and they're not looking and they're perishing. Now, this phrase, now I'm going to read it the way I read it for many years before I think I discovered what it said. I'm going to read it this way, then I'm going to change the way I read it. Now, the reason they would not look is because they did not believe it would heal them. Notice I emphasize the word heal. There are people who don't turn to God because they don't believe he would heal them. Their lack of faith is they don't believe Jesus works. They don't believe there is a Jesus. They don't believe Jesus heals. But look at the very end of verse 19. That doesn't make sense. Many did look and live. How could they doubt that it worked when people were being healed by it? So let me reread verse 20. I'm going to emphasize a different word, and I'm going to modernize it. The reason... Many Latter-day Saints don't look to God. They don't look to Christ. Is because they do not believe that it would heal them. Like it works for you, Bryce. You see the difference? But It's not going to work for me. They don't doubt that Jesus heals. They just doubt that Jesus would heal them. And I think another reason why is because we think we've got
1: to do it. And that's why I think even in this lesson, in this discourse, he says,
0: it's because of the sun. Don't get cocky, Bryce, and think it's because you think you're so great. You can't grow this tree without him. Yeah. You can't. You'll never produce a tree without Jesus. You just won't. No matter how much you nourish it, you won't grow this tree without Christ. You need him. And he understands that you're not perfect. I think it's this mentality that Jesus is for the faithful. Jesus is for the goody goodies. Jesus is for the people who never make mistakes. And there are people who do not fully turn to Christ because they don't think he wants them. Other people he wants, but not them. And they consider themselves second-class saints because I'm not good enough for Jesus's help. Well, you misunderstand the whole reason he came if you think that. You have missed the gospel if you think that. I love that Paul said, Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And we've missed the whole point of the gospel, if you do not turn to Christ because you're somehow not good enough for Christ.
1: Which kind of ties into verse 16. It really makes the Lord sad, or in this case angry, if we just don't get that idea, right? We don't get the mercies. The word is chesed, which is like this deep, abiding, everlasting, never-ending love, right? So much of this is emphasized throughout the Book of Mormon. This, he just wants to come out and grab you, right? Yep. And
0: just take you home. Yep. So don't stop growing the tree because you've made some mistakes and you think that Jesus has given up on you. You completely misunderstand the atonement. Isaiah once said, can a woman forget her sucking child? that she shouldn't have compassion on the son of her womb? Why is it that women have a hard time walking away from their babies? We've seen it. Why is it that women have such a hard time giving up their babies? Well, it's because they've paid too high a price. They can't walk away. It would nullify the price they paid if they walked away. Well, Isaiah's trying to say, do you see why Jesus can't walk away from you? He can't. He's paid too high a price. He will never walk away. You are never beyond his reach. Laman and Lemuel kind of showed this same thing when they came to Nephi and said, "Um, what meaneth this? And Nephi said, have you inquired of the Lord? And they said, we have not. For he maketh no such thing known unto us. I have to emphasize the unto us because clearly they believe that Nephi had the answers. He maketh this thing known unto you, Nephi. He maketh not that thing known unto us. Again, it's that same mentality. He won't answer my prayers. He will answer yours, Nephi, because you're our goody-goody brother. But he won't answer mine. And if I could just plead with everyone out there that that is wrong, that is false doctrine.
1: That's a human tendency I think we have. It
0: is. I'm not good enough. It
1: works for the bishop. I know the bishop's going to get there, but me, not so much. By the way, that verse you just quoted was First Nephi 15, verse 9. And that I would cross-reference out right with Alma 33:20. right? This idea of, hey, the gospel works for that other guy. They wouldn't
0: be asking Nephi if they didn't think Nephi had the answers. right? So clearly God speaks to Nephi and you have the answers. Well, why haven't you asked God? He doesn't talk to us. And there's a very real thing in the church where people think, I don't get the benefits of the gospel. We kind of see this right now with the emphasis President Nelson
1: is trying to push towards the saints: of, are you listening to him? Are you hearing him? In other words, yes, he's, he's the prophet. He's the president of the church. But the Lord can speak to
0: you and you need to get, you need to get that, don't you? You need him. And don't think that you don't qualify because he's not going to turn his back on you. So don't stop nourishing the tree because you've made some mistakes and you think that somehow God doesn't want you in his life. You're wrong. He does. The whole point of the gospel is to save everyone. And no one, if you haven't, if you didn't pay attention to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, you missed that point because they called themselves the most lost of all mankind. And if God will save the most lost of all mankind, he will certainly answer your prayers. Turn to him, feed the tree, nourish the tree.
1: So then Amulek, we get a shift. Amulek speaks, that's verse 1 of chapter 34. There are some must reads in here if you're teaching. I would definitely want to have these on my list. I would have verse 8 and 9, this infinite and last sacrifice. Amulek's emphasis is that a God must suffer verse 16 and 31, how the atonement works. I don't think you could teach Alma 34 without verse 33, the whole concept of don't procrastinate, now is the time to prepare to meet God. Those are so important. Um, I just want to read verse 8 and 9 and 10. I will testify unto myself that these things are true. Behold, I say unto you that I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people, and that he shall atone for the sins of the world. For the Lord God hath spoken it, for it is expedient or necessary that an atonement should be made." For according to the great plan of the eternal god there must be an atonement made or else all mankind must unavoidably perish all are hardened and all are lost and are fallen yea all are hardened and are fallen and are lost and must perish except it be through the atonement which it is expedient should be made for it is expedient or necessary that there should be a great and last sacrifice yea not a sacrifice of man neither of beast nor of any manner of foul, for it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. So a couple of thoughts. Uh, Clearly, In this text, Amulek is talking about a God must suffer. I also think in this context, culturally, some of these people probably were used to human sacrifice, and he's like, yeah, that's wrong. So when he's talking, when he says, listen, guys, I'm talking about Jesus, but we're not talking about human sacrifice, totally different. And I really do think he's drawing out this idea that Jesus is both God and man, that a God must suffer. I think These are really important verses in Alma 34, as far as Jesus being a God, an infinite being to suffer
0: for an infinite thing. Amulek is trying to teach the same thing. Nourish the tree. Jesus is the best way to nourish the tree. So starting in verse 17, this is how you begin to exercise your faith. You exercise your faith by calling upon him. And notice how many times he says that in the next few verses. Call upon his holy name. Cry unto him. Continue in prayer. Cry unto him. Cry unto him. And then verse 26, pour out your souls verse 27, and when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your heart be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare, and all for for the welfare of those around you. In other words, one of the best ways to grow your tree is through prayer. You've got to get God and Jesus into your life through prayer. And then what I love is Amulek adds one that Alma didn't. Not that Alma wouldn't have, but he was just I I guess he just focused on other things. And then Amulek points out, says, wait, there's one more thing I've got to point out. And I wish we gave more emphasis to this. If you want to nourish your tree, getting God into your life is critical. Both of them said that. But I love how Amulek takes it from there. Notice the last thing he said is you need to pray for yourself and for the welfare of those around you. And then he says this, and this is powerful doctrine." And now, this is verse 28, And now, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. Prayer is not it. After you have done all these things, meaning prayer, if ye turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and the afflicted and impart of your substance, if ye have to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. In other words, one of the best ways we nourish our tree is by taking care of each other. Love, service, kindness. Now that's a pretty significant list. If you want to first plant the seed, and then when it sprouts and you know it's a good seed, you feed it with, we've got prayer, we've got scripture study. We've got getting Jesus into your life, and now we add one of the best ways we get Jesus into our life is by loving and serving the people around us. When Brigham Young found out about the ones that were crossing the plains and stuck in Wyoming— And the snows hit early. —in the snows, he canceled General Conference, and he said this, This afternoon's meeting will be omitted— For I wish the sisters to go home and prepare to give those who have just arrived a mouthful of something to eat and wash them and nurse them. You know that I would give more for a dish of pudding and milk and baked potato and salt were I in this same situation as those persons who had just come in than I would for all your prayers, though you were to stay here all afternoon in prayer. Prayer is good. But when baked potatoes and pudding and milk are needed, prayer will not supply their place on this occasion. Give every duty its proper time and place. In other words, let's cancel the afternoon meeting so we can feed the hungry.
1: The spiritual and the temporal are really combined. That's why to Brigham, all the prayer in the world is not going to supply those potatoes. We got to get them off the plains, right?
0: Yeah, so all the scripture reading and all the prayer is wonderful. It's wonderful. But there comes a time when your neighbor needs your help. When your wife, your husband, your child, and that's the time, if we really are nourishing the tree, we're going to focus on helping someone with what they need in this moment. Even if that means temporarily, I put my scriptures down. Because nourishing the tree is taking care of other people.
1: One of the New Testament books that really emphasizes this is James, where James is like, oh, I'll show you my faith, right, by what I do. So I got to say, verse 16 Mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety. That, to me, is a symbol for the atonement, the embrace, being circled about in the arms of safety, while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. So we have this idea of being covered or being exposed. He says, essentially, hey, what do we got to do? Well, we got to repent. So verse 31, If you would not harden your hearts any longer, now's the time, now's the day, don't harden your hearts. And then it says, when you do this, when you repent and harden not your hearts, I like that word, immediately. Immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. You cry out, and the Lord forgives. Now, there's still the process, right? There's still, sanctification needs to take place, but justification, right, where immediately the Lord says, I'm bringing you the plan of salvation, that's the promise that it immediately starts working. A- another analogy maybe with a broken bone might be helpful here. If you break your bone right when you go in to get help and they set the bone and they do what they need to do to get it healing, immediately the healing starts. Now the healing takes process of time, but it starts working right then. And I really like verse 31 as an illustration of how the atonement works. And then he says in verse 32, This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God right now. Behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And as I've said to you before, as you've had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you to not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given to us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we don't improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness wherein there can be no labor performed." You cannot say when I brought to that awful crisis that I'll repent, that I'll return to my God. Yea, you cannot say this. For that same spirit which does possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. And then he talks about. Procrastinating. Now, that can sometimes lead people to lose hope, can it, Bryce?
0: Yeah. And I don't think it was intended to do that. It wasn't, he was speaking to people who are trying to do what's right. And Alma is saying, now is the time. I think it's in the context of phase two of growing a testimony. And that is, once you start down the path, You've got to keep going. You've got to nourish. Don't quit. Don't quit. I don't think he's definitively trying to declare that you can't repent in the spirit world, because every other doctrine we've been taught, if you balance all the doctrines of the gospel, the very reason we do work for the dead is because we believe you can repent in the spirit world. So good preaching
1: afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. So I don't think we want to use these verses to afflict the afflicted. I think we want to use them. If you're in a comfortable place and you're like, ah, I can repent later, I think we need to read them and say, no, giddy up, we need to repent now. I don't think we want to use these verses as a hammer to beat somebody
0: over the head with. No, that was not Amulek's intent at all. And so we need to not let that define that particular doctrine. What he's trying to say is be careful because the sun is scorching. And if you don't grow that tree, if you're not nourishing the tree and the nutrients aren't coming up, then the sun is going to outscorch it. And that's a true doctrine. That is, be careful that you don't be scorched.
1: You know, President Kimball talked about this where he says sin can become habit forming. And I like this quote, but I think this quote can also be misused. So I want to read it and then I want to, Bryce and I, want to talk about it a little bit where he says, "Uh, sin can become a habit. It's intensely habit forming and sometimes moves men to the tragic point of no return. Without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. And without forgiveness, all the blessings of eternity hang in jeopardy. As the transgressor moves deeper and deeper in his sin and the error is entrenched more deeply and the will to change is weakened, it becomes increasingly near hopeless as he skids down and down until he either does not want to climb back up or he has lost the power to do so. Now, he said that in Miracle Forgiveness. And the spirit of it, Bryce, I really do believe. And I really do believe that you can skid down until you've lost the power to repent without help. I think
0: that's why we have addiction recovery and those kinds of things. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that all hope is forever lost. We worship a God of second chances, and the gospel is filled with evidence. I mean, you look at Amulek himself, you look at Lamoni, you look at Lamoni's father, you look at Alma the Younger, the very people who are preaching this sermon were basically given a second chance because their life was kind of skidding. And so don't let what a prophet is saying— to this particular audience to try and help them with their particular challenge, define every doctrine in every circumstance. And I think that's another thing
1: that's rooted in our doctrine of the work for the dead. Redemption for the dead... Section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, everything I know about Jesus tells me, you know, we got to get up one more time than we fall. We just keep getting up. So a couple of really cool quotes that give hope to Latter-day Saints. One is by Elder George Q. Cannon, where he says essentially this, if you leave this life and you're on the path, you're not going to fall off. Look what he says. He says, Satan is bound as soon as the faithful spirit leaves this tabernacle of clay and goes to the other side of the veil. That spirit is emancipated from the power and the attacks of Satan. Satan can only afflict such in this life. He can only afflict those in that life which is to come who have listened to his persuasions and who have listed to obey him. And then another quote by Elder McConkie, Our Probationary Test of Mortality. He talks about this idea that you can't fall off the straight and narrow path in the next life. He says this, the straight and narrow path leads to a very great distance to a reward that's called eternal life. If you're on the path and pressing forward and you die, you'll never get off the path. There is no such thing as falling off the straight narrow path in the life to come. If you're working zealously in this life, though you haven't fully overcome the world and you haven't done everything you thought you would do, you're still going to be saved. You don't have to have an excessive zeal that becomes fanatical and unbalancing. What you have to do is stay in the mainstream of the church And he goes on talking about keeping your commandments, paying your tithing, serving in the church, loving the Lord. And then he says this, if you're on the path when death comes, you'll never fall from it. And for all practical purposes, your calling and election is made sure. Those two quotes give me a lot of hope. This idea, I know that sounds kind of morbid, but I really like this idea of being safely dead. Um, Elder F. Burton Howard talked about this, where he says, life isn't over until you're safely dead. Meaning once you're dead, Satan can't touch you and you're on the path and it's, you're going to make it. And so I really like that. And I really think, Bryce, what's happening here is Amulek's trying to emphasize to these people, now that you've tasted the fruit, don't quit. Keep nourishing
0: the tree. I think that's the message of Alma 34. Because once you have that fruit, you have the food that we eat in the celestial kingdom. Hang in there. Nourish your tree. I know the sun is scorching, and I know there are a lot of voices out there that scream all sorts of doctrines at us. They want us to question our beliefs. They want to throw shade on the prophet Joseph Smith. They want to criticize the Book of Mormon. But I, I just testify to everyone, the seed is a good seed. And the evidence that I have is all four of those. It swells within me constantly. I have seen the change it makes in me. I have seen the change, the gospel, the Book of Mormon, the teachings of Joseph Smith make in the lives of people who read them and live them. I have seen that change firsthand. It enlightens my understanding. It tastes good. The deeper you dive into the gospel, the sweeter the fruit tastes. And it's all Jesus The more you come to find him, the more you discover who he is, the more you bring him into your life, the sweeter the fruit is. As one who has tasted that fruit, I testify that the seed is a good seed. That's awesome. 35. I think this is a segue chapter, don't you think? It is. It's Mormon coming in saying, okay, we've been very, very heavy on these missionary stories. We did Ammoniah. We did the mission to the Lamanites. We did the Zoramites. And now we're going to stop doing that. We're going to interrupt. We're going to get Alma's letters to his sons, followed by the war chapters. The rest of Alma is not going to take the same approach we've been taking. Be prepared for that. And with that, we will end this podcast. Thanks for listening. And water the tree,
1: nourish the tree. It's relational, and God wants us in this. He wants us to come to the tree, water it, and as as we do, we'll eat the fruit of eternal life. Uh, My testimony is that these words are good. This is a good seed. And with that,
0: we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.